Well, good afternoon, brethren. It's a privilege to be here with you. It's good to see some familiar faces after being away for a number of weeks. Uh, Mr. Punch uh, hit me with his punchline. He said, have you signed the guest book? And I <laughs> wanted to share with you a little bit of uh, information about the trip that I recently took to uh, New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa. It was interesting, it was informative, but it was also very sobering. Before we get into the message, I wanted to share just a little story that may put this into perspective. Picked this up in Australia. Said the Jones family was a very proud family with a long family tradition. Their ancestors had come to Australia as immigrants. They had a line that included senators, musicians, pastors, and Wall Street geniuses. They decided to compile a family history that they could then share their legacy with their offspring, their children, over the years. Uh, after looking for some time, they eventually found a very highly reputed, uh, reputable uh, author. And they told the author, before we do this project, we've got a problem. Uh, we had a fellow by the name of Uncle Jim that uh, was sent to prison and he was electrocuted in the electric chair. But we, we don't want to work that into the autobiography or into the, uh, the, uh, the family history. But this author said, well, I've, I've worked with this kind of material before. I know exactly how to handle it. Don't worry about it. So uh, he got busy, started writing the family legacy, family, all the traditions, and finally, he notified them the book is ready, uh, ready to uh, publish, uh, ready to distribute. So they sent them a copy, and everybody turned to the page about Uncle Jim. And this is what they read. Uncle Jim occupied a chair of applied electronics. <laughs> At an important government institution. He was attached to his position by the strongest of ties. And his death came as a real shock. <laughs> the Australians have an interesting sense of humor. <laughs> what, I, what I'd like to do is share with you a little bit of uh, uh, the trip that I took recently that I hope will not be shocking, but I hope will be informative and also inspiring. I'd like to show how this relates to our mission as a church. If I can press all the right buttons here, we'll make these things happen. Many of you are familiar with the scriptures. Can you all see that from where you are? Okay. Many of you are familiar with the scriptures we read in the New Testament where Jesus told his disciples in Mark 16, 15, that they were to go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone. I think we're also familiar with Matthew 10:6, where Jesus told his disciples, you are to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, to fulfill that, they had to know who these people were and where they were. Matthew 24 is a prophecy. It says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world, and then the end will come. What I'd like to do is turn first to Acts, the first chapter. Acts, the first chapter. And verse 8, this is where Jesus was talking with his disciples <clears throat> before he ascended into heaven. And he gave them some very interesting prophetic instructions. 
In verse 8, he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He's talking about what was going to happen on the day of Pentecost. But notice what he said. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, that area throughout the Middle East. But then he says, and to the end of the earth. To the end of the earth. The word there is eschatos, and it means the remotest parts of the earth. You're going to go there. When you look at where we have congregations of the church today, they literally are at the very ends of the earth, down at the tip of South Africa, the very tip of South America. Mr. Gerald Weston has visited people up near the Arctic Circle. Uh, When I went to Perth, they said, welcome to Perth at the end of the earth. (laughs) It's supposed to be one of the most isolated capitals in the world. It's this way at the western end of Australia. But Jesus told his disciples, you will go to the ends of the earth. And it's interesting, that's where we have gone today. And we've got churches scattered all over uh, the world. I'd like you to look at two other scriptures very quickly before we get into the message this afternoon or what I have prepared for you this afternoon. I don't intend just to give a travelogue. I want to follow the scriptures in terms of what the apostles actually did. In Luke chapter 9, the first couple of verses, Luke chapter 9, the first couple of verses, says, Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over uh, demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. They were sent out to do something. Now go to uh, verse 10. The, you know, the disciples, the apostles went out and they preached. They did what they were told. But notice what else that they did. It says, the apostles, when they had returned, told him, that is, told Jesus all that they had done. In other words, they came back and they told Jesus Christ, this is what we did. This is where we went. This is what happened. Notice in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, you can maybe read the whole chapters when you go home. But in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John go up to the temple and they heal an individual. And then they are arrested because they were creating problems. The religious leaders of Christ's day weren't doing the same things. But they were arrested and they were raked over the coals by the religious leaders of their day. But notice in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. And being let go, this is Peter and John, They went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So they came back and they explained, this is what happened. This is what we went through. This is what uh, we encountered, and this is how God has intervened in various ways. So I'd like to follow that example this afternoon. I want to talk about preaching the gospel around the world. Many of you probably wondered, what's it like to travel around the world? Well, I just came back from traveling around the world. It wasn't to get away from Dr. Meredith. (laughs) But it was merely to go to God's people. You know, in my standard introduction, whenever I spoke to the people, was I want to bring you greetings from Dr. Meredith, from Mr. Ames, and your brethren in Charlotte. And it was very encouraging to see and hear the responses of those people. 
You've probably seen the movie or seen reference to it around the world in 80 days. Jules Verne had written that, and they were on sailing ships, and they were in balloons, and they were walking various places. This happened to be around the world in 21 days, primarily on airplanes. You know, the Apostle Paul traveled by boat, but we have different means to do that today. So what I'd like to do this afternoon is kind of answer the question, what's it like to preach the gospel around the world? I want to show you who is doing the work in some of these places and how it is being done. And I also want to show towards the end of the message how current events in New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa relate to Bible prophecy. Because we're talking about events that are taking place on the other side of the world, down under, as it's called. But we have people down there. God has people there. He's blessed people there, put people there. But things are happening there that don't really make the papers up here that much. So we're going to take a quick trip. Left Charlotte on a Tuesday afternoon, actually in the morning, and we flew five hours, five and a half hours, 2,300 miles across the United States to San Francisco. Had several hours of a layover there in San Francisco, and I had a very interesting experience. I graduated from high school 50 years ago. Last summer, my wife and I went to my 50th high school reunion. And I reconnected with a guy that I played basketball with. We had a very close relationship. I guarded him and he guarded me <laughs> in practice. So we were jostling each other. We did this for several years. But we really hadn't seen each other in about 50 years. So I called him, or actually communicated by email. I said, Bill, would you like to get together for dinner? So I had several hours. So we got together for dinner. And we sat down and we just talked for a number of hours. And it was really quite interesting. We graduated from high school together. We played basketball together. He went to the United States Military Academy, West Point. I went to college, joined the ROTC, Reserve Officers Training uh, Corps. So we had that in, in common. Whenever uh, he graduated from West Point, he joined the Army, went to Southeast Asia for a number of years. When I graduated from college, I went to graduate school to become a doctor. But then our lives really diverged. I came in contact with the church of God. And I learned about God's way of life. I learned about early church history, what happened to the church. I learned about the coming kingdom of God. When I was done with graduate school, I went to Ambassador College. When Bill was done with uh, West Point, uh, or with his soldiering duties in Southeast Asia, he went back to Harvard, got a Master of Business Administration and worked in the corporate world for about 35 years. He had some interesting experiences. He said he left several positions and was let go from several positions because he wouldn't keep a duplicate set of books. He wouldn't compromise his principles. You know, I got fired from the ministry because I wouldn't compromise certain doctrinal teachings. Because we had some things in common. <clears throat> Bill is now retired, and he works in his garden, spends time with his family. We both kind of graduated from high school as idealistic young men. We wanted to change the world. I think Bill has resigned. He's not going to change the world. There were some issues in California politics. He wrote some letters, and he was basically told, mind your own business. We'll take care of things. We don't need your input. 
So Bill has resigned. He's retired and resigned. You know, I learned about the coming kingdom of God, that Jesus Christ is going to return. We're going to reign with him on this earth, and we're going to change the world. It's just a very interesting contrast of experiences that we've had over the years. I hope that we appreciate what God has done, opening our minds to understand the gospel of the kingdom of God and what is coming. After dinner, <clears throat> got on an airplane uh, headed for New Zealand. 13 hours, 63, 6,500 miles. It's a long way. You know, some people say, how do you do it? I did most of my long flight legs at night. You get on the plane about uh, 11 o'clock at night, you're tired. You can't go anywhere, so you sit there and you close your eyes. Sometimes you sleep and sometimes you doze. But we got into New Zealand the next morning uh, <clears throat> about uh, 7 o'clock, I think it was, in the morning. I had remembered, but I didn't really think about, it's winter down there. We left Charlotte temperatures about 90 degrees. We landed down there. It was about 7 degrees centigrade, which is, I don't know what, about 40 degrees or maybe 35 degrees, something like that. Like I said, I remembered it was winter, but I'd forgotten to take a heavier suit and forgotten to take a, a lined raincoat. So I spent about three weeks trying to stay warm. <clears throat> but they were helpful. I think the, the penman's actually put a hot water bottle in my bed to keep me warm at night. <laughs> It was quite a trip down that way. Uh, New Zealand is a very interesting place, a very beautiful country. Uh, it sits on an isthmus on the North Island. You look to the east, you're looking across the, uh, the ocean towards China. You look to the west, you're looking at the Pacific. We're standing on top of a hill that overlooks a good bit of New Zealand. There are a number of volcanic craters around Auckland. In fact, what's sobering is there are 45 volcanoes right around Auckland. And if some of those things become active again, things could be very challenging for people in New Zealand. This is the office. It's actually the home of the Penmans in uh, New Zealand. This is uh, Mr. and Mrs. Penman, Carolyn and Kinnear. Mr. Penman is the office manager as well as the pastor of the churches there in New Zealand. This is the unfortunate view they have out of their kitchen window <laughs> that they have to look at every day. Uh, it's one of the bays that comes in off of some of the bigger bays. Uh, at a Sabbath service there um, in New Zealand, we were able to help Mr. Penman pass out some uh, Spokesman's Club certificates. Our first Tomorrow's World Special Presentation was in Auckland. Uh, <clears throat> they'd had about, I think, 100 people pre-registered. Mr. Penman had about another 100 people that had called, said they wanted to come. And that evening, another 100 people showed up that we didn't know were going to show up. And they just kept coming in. We used a Holiday Inn uh, ballroom, and we had to use all three sections of it. Uh, this is a shot of the crowd. We started out by asking, what's ahead for New Zealand? Now, basically, these people received a letter from Dr. Meredith inviting them to come. They received a brochure with a little bit of background about the speaker and also our programs. But the key was basically, what is ahead for New Zealand? How do we know what's coming? And this was a shot of the earthquake damage down in Christchurch, which is on the South Island. 
a little bit more of the damage, and I don't know whether all these earthquakes had something to do with more and more people coming to the presentation. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, we also ask questions, basically, who are you, New Zealand? In other words, as a nation, where do you come from? Uh, where are you heading? And what does the future hold for New Zealand? And is there a source that reveals the future of New Zealand? We gave them a packet of materials, including some of the booklets that we published, some of the reprint articles, as well as a, uh, a complete copy of the PowerPoint presentation that I used. But one of the issues that I brought up and I said, if you've never proven to yourself that the Bible is the inspired word of God, you need to do that. You need to do that. Is it just a collection of myths and stories or is it the source of revealed knowledge about the future? I encourage people to think about that. The presentation was in two parts. The first part, we asked the question, can you identify New Zealand in prophecy? And why is it important to know that? And the second part was, what does Bible prophecy reveal about New Zealand's future? What does the Bible actually say? We also made the point that the, the real key to understanding Bible prophecy is being able to identify the nation of Israel or the Israelite nations in prophecy. And then we ask, who are these people and where are these people today and how can you find them? And in the first part of the presentation, we went through some of the prophecies about the Israelite peoples. The Jews have never fulfilled these prophecies. I remember reading an article in, I think it was Christianity Today magazine a number of years ago. It said, uh, the Jews have never fulfilled these prophecies, so apparently they'll never be fulfilled. Well, that's not the kind of God that inspired the Bible. But we went through these prophecies focusing primarily on the nation of, of, of Ephraim. Ephraim was prophesied to become a company of nations. And in Australia and New Zealand are part of that company. So prophecies about the Israelite nations, they were to spread abroad, possess the gates of their enemies, become a nation and a company of nations, were, are being fulfilled by the nations that those people were living in today. We, may, we explained this as part of what we explain in our booklet, the... <clears throat> United States and Britain Commonwealth and Prophecy. But I had to make the point there because about half of these people in New Zealand were Pacific Islanders. They were not Israelites. You know, so how does this relate to them? As basically there are spiritual promises in the Bible also, and you can pick this up in Galatians. Paul makes the statement that he was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was sent to them. God has a message for them too. In Galatians 3.29, he said, If you are Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promises. God's plan encompasses all human beings. In Galatians 6.16, he talks about Israel, the Israel of God, the church being the Israel of God. It's a spiritual concept. So explaining these things enable people to begin to understand. I actually had one of these ladies come up afterwards, and she said, I am so grateful to be called now. And she had tears in her eyes because she saw where she fit into the big picture. And she was excited about that. The rest of the first part of the program was basically, and I'm just doing this a quick summary here so that you see what we did, was asking the question, is there any biblical or historical evidence that links the Israelites with Northwest Europe, Britain, America, and then also Australia and New Zealand? And I went through 10 or 12 proofs just to show there is evidence there is evidence in history, there's evidence in archaeology 
that links these people together. You know, many of you came out of the Worldwide Church of God. And before we left that organization, the young men that took it over made fun of this concept. They said, this whole thing is silly. There's no evidence. It's a bunch of baloney. They were not telling the truth because the evidence is there. And what I found is that the presentation was not only interesting to new people, it was very encouraging to our brethren who've seen this whole thing trashed and made fun of because the evidence is there. It's undeniable. This was part of the presentation. Then the latter part of the presentation was what does Bible prophecy say about these nations? And we talked a little bit about the covenants. You know, the covenants that God entered into with ancient Israel and also with Abraham. A covenant is an, a, a, an agreement with obligations. You get down to a dealership and you buy a car. You can sit in the car in the showroom. You can smell it. You can lift up the trunk. You can look at, lift up the hood. You can drive it around a block. But you can't have it until you enter into a covenant, until you sign on the dotted line. God has never forgotten the promises that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. One of the reasons we live in a country as blessed as we do today is because God made promises to Abraham. He said, I'm going to do some things for you, but I want you to obey me. The obligations of the covenant, God says, you'll be blessed if you obey, but there will be consequences if you disobey. And this is what we're dealing with. You know, the prophets in the Old Testament were called messengers of the covenants. They came periodically to the kings and they said, you're turning away from the covenant. You've forgotten the agreement. God blessed you, but you're turning away and there will be consequences. And we just went through a number of the promises and some of the the um, the complications or the, the uh, consequences. As an example, in Deuteronomy 28, God says, if you don't obey the voice of the Lord, these things will happen to you. Droughts, famines, disasters. And they've had a number of disasters down under in Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. It talks about foreigners are going to consume your resources. And this was one of the big concerns in Australia. The Chinese are down there buying up sugar factories, buying up coal mines. And one comment was made, if we don't give them good prices, they'll come down here and take it. They'll come down here and take it. They're concerned. Because they don't have the defense force in Australia to defend themselves down there. They're depending on America. And we may not be in the mood to do anything. We may not be able to. Moses said, if you disobey the boy, the voice of the Lord, these other countries will lend to you, which is what's happening in America, is happening in Australia and other places. The other point there was that uh, it's a very interesting point to make in New Zealand where God says your sheep will be given to your enemies. In New Zealand, they've got about 4 million sheep. Or is it 40 million sheep? One of the two. And uh, a lot fewer people. And this doesn't relate to America that much, but uh, in New Zealand, it does. But these are some of the prophecies God said would happen if you turn away from God. It was interesting, the response in New Zealand. We had 301 guests, and we probably mailed out about two, a little over 2,000 invitations, if I remember right. But we were literally overwhelmed by the response. But even the follow-up has been very interesting. The presentation I gave, we had about 300 guests. 
Uh, Mr. Penman gave one a week later on where is God's church today. And he had 114 guests. Then the next Sabbath after that, because he indicated that you're welcome to come to church, had 44 guests came to church. And then the second Sabbath after that, 26 people came back to church. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next several weeks down there, that these people were very interested. After the presentation, we hopped a flight from uh, New Zealand to Australia, three hours and three and a half hours, about 1,400 miles. Spent a little bit of time in, uh, actually about a day, 24 hours to 48 hours in uh, Brisbane. Then took another flight down to uh, <clears throat> to Melbourne, about 800 miles, a little over 800 miles. And a couple of days later, took another flight over to Adelaide, where our office is in that area. So this is what happened over a period of four or five days in Australia. Just to introduce you to some people, this is uh, Jeanette and Daryl Tanner. Mr. Tanner is the pastor of the Brisbane Church. He's been here in Charlotte several times, a very lovely couple. This was a family portrait. I had breakfast with them the next morning after the presentation. Uh, it's their daughter and her husband, uh, their kids, and then a couple of fellows from Sydney. Again, we made the presentation, What's Ahead for Australia? The area of Brisbane is in the area of Queensland. It had some very devastating floods very recently. Uh, that uh, were quite disastrous. The Brisbane uh, Tomorrow's World presentation, we had 67 guests. It was on a rainy night. It was not the best night to come out. But 67 guests, 42 members for about 109 people total. The weather in Melbourne was not much better. It was a rainy, wet, cold day and a rainy, wet, cold night. We were looking over the bay here talking with uh, Mr. Gill in his car. These are some of our leaders there in the uh, Melbourne area, uh, Zig and Jennifer Zvelby. Uh, it was Jennifer Hanway. She went through Ambassador College. The fellow sitting beside me was George uh, Kalash and his wife. And then the other couple there, Paul and Tina Niehoff, uh, were from Sydney. We did not have a presentation there because our Tomorrow's World mailing list is quite small there yet. And then Mr. Gill sitting at the front. Again, the presentation, what's ahead for Australia, talking about these uh, floods in that area. Interesting, there were two earthquakes in Melbourne the day of the presentation, one in the morning, one in the evening. I don't know whether that helped the turnout, but it certainly didn't hurt it. <laughs> and 175 guests showed up. Uh, and again, the room just started to fill up, and they had to uh, set up extra chairs and so on. Again, it was upstairs. It was a rainy night. But uh, a number of people came out. Then we flew to uh, Adelaide, Australia. This is a shot from the mountain looking down towards the ocean. Adelaide's a pretty city. Uh, sits in a very nice area. A couple of shots here of the uh, church property in a little town called Clarendon. It's up in the hills uh, on the edge of Adelaide. They purchased this property several years ago and started fixing it up, fixing up the grounds. Uh, most of the buildings in this little town were all built late 1800s, early 1900s of this uh, stone. It's just a very pleasant little town. This administrative building and then some of the people inside. This is Nicole Rona. She is the assistant to Mr. Tyler and Mr. Gill. Uh, she's downstairs when you first walk in. This is Mark Mager, office administrator. He's actually from California. Uh, this is Ryan Nicholson, the accountant. He is a local fellow there from Australia. Uh, 
This is Michael Gill. He is the Director of Finance and Media, but also pastors the Melbourne Congregation. A very pleasant individual. I stayed with he and his wife. This is Mr. Bruce Tyler, the regional director down there. Those are not pinups behind him. That's his daughter and his wife. <laughs> it's another building on the property they acquired. This is where they have uh, classrooms for their students that are taking living university classes, also their mailing operation. But as you can see from the town, it's just a very pleasant little place. Um, this is the classroom where the students take their living university classes. This is a student lounge in the same building. This is Mr. Rob Tyler. He is the regional office manager, but he also works with the students that are taking living university classes. These are several of the students, one girl from New Zealand and the other girl from the United States. We had a lecture in, in or presentation in Adelaide, again, using the question, what's ahead head for Australia? Asking these questions, can you identify Australia in Bible prophecy? And what does Bible prophecy say about Australia's future? We didn't have as many guests there, but Mr. Um, Tyler mentioned that the church in the Adelaide area has always been kind of small. Uh, for whatever reasons, he did not know. But we had 55 guests, and I think they had about half of those people came back for the follow-up presentation a week later. We then hopped a plane to head to Perth across the country, three-and-a-half-hour flight, about 1,300 miles over the central part of Australia, which is uh, the outback, kind of a rugged area, uh, over to Perth. And as the lady said, welcome to Perth at the end of the earth. <laughs> uh, very pleasant city, though. Sits by a river coming into the, into the, ocean, into the Indian Ocean. This is Mr. Mal Jennings and his wife. Mr. Jennings played the trumpet at the uh, ministerial uh, um, dance that we had at the conference a couple years ago. Very gifted person, very warm uh, and genuine hosts. Uh, Mr. Jennings is the pastor of the Perth congregation. He was a shop teacher in uh, high school for a number of years. Uh, had a presentation in Perth. This is a shot of the audience there, filled up their meeting hall. This is actually where they meet for church. A number of people stayed around to have discussions afterwards and had a number of very interesting questions. Had about 112 guests in Perth, 39 members. This is an interesting little shopping area downtown Perth. You'll notice the sign. It was called London Court, and all the buildings and all the uh, shops in there were on the theme of of. Of, the, of London, which you get to feel this was an English country uh, at one time. Uh, these were some shoppers we saw in the street there. That, uh, <laughs> Mr. Jennings, Mr. Tyler, and myself was looking for some stuff for my grandkids. Um, from Perth, I hopped a flight on South African Air to uh, uh, Johannesburg, Eleven and a half hours, 5,200 miles across the Indian Ocean. Again, it was a night flight. Got on the flight about 11 o'clock at night, and then we get in the next morning about, uh, uh, I think it was about 7 or 8 o'clock. Took an immediate flight down to Cape Town, about two hours, 800 miles. We did a Bible study down there. Uh, had uh, some visits, and then uh, another flight back up to uh, Johannesburg, the capital. No, it's not the capital. It's the biggest town. Johannesburg reminds you a lot of San Diego. They're very affluent, uh, but there are things in Johannesburg you don't have, or we don't have in San Diego. 
I was reading whenever we came in to land in uh, Cape Town, and I looked out the window, and I, I realized we're just about to hit the ground, and I looked outside, and I couldn't see a thing. And this was the soup that we landed in down there, so we came in by instruments. It was kind of foggy around the Cape that morning. Cape Town is, I think, one of the most striking cities that you'll find uh, on Earth. It sits right underneath Table Mountain, a very dramatic setting. Uh, these are some clouds coming over the top of Table Mountain. Warm air coming out of the Indian Ocean hits the cool air on the Pacific, and you get um, uh, the effect like this on the clouds. It's also a very productive area. You know, God told Abraham that your descendants are going to basically... In- Settle in some of the choice places on the earth. And around Cape Town is a very fertile area, a lot of vineyards there uh, under the shadow of these mountains. We uh, drove out to what used to be a governor's mansion built by the Dutch. You can see the Dutch architecture there uh, in in 1600s. It's now a winery. And uh, Mr. Vanderbile and I had lunch there. This is Mr. Peter Vanderbile. He grew up on a farm just down the road from this place. He's our regional pastor down there, grew up in South Africa, a very pleasant person to be with. This is our church office in Harry Smith. Uh, This is kind of uh, north and east of Johannesburg. It's out of a big city. We got out of the big city primarily for security reasons, but you'll notice there are bars on the window. This is in a small town. It's kind of a rural town, a farming town. But uh, Mr. Crystal Botha and his wife uh, had the house out there. They live out there, and they're operating the office from out there. This is a view that they have to endure out of their front window. You're looking at kind of uh, national park land. I was there a couple of years ago, and you were watching animals moving up there. And they were not cows. They were wild uh, animals uh, walking around the hillsides. This is Mr. Crystal Botha. He was an engineer. He's now the office manager and an elder there in South Africa, a very efficient person. This is his wife, Rhea, and how they have fixed up their garage and some of the rooms in the house to make sure that the office runs properly. From there, we drove up to Pretoria, which is the capital of South Africa. We're standing at a monument. You'll notice the covered wagons down there. I'll say a little bit more about that in just a minute. But Perth, excuse me, Pretoria is a pretty city. Uh, It's located fairly well inland, but it's the capital of South Africa. It was settled by Afrikaners. Afrikaners were a mixture of Dutch and French and Germans that settled first on the Cape, and then whenever the British took control of the Cape, these Afrikaners made a trek in the 1800s, about the same time as our pioneers were making a trek across the United States. They got in their covered wagons, Uh, The guys got their muskets, and the ladies put on their bonnets and their dresses, and they headed off to the interior, and they settled up around Pretoria. This is a monument to that uh, great trek, as they call it. We had a Sabbath service in uh, Pretoria, and I told them, I said, we can either give a sermon or I can go through the PowerPoint presentation that we used in Australia. And they said, we want to see what you did. Uh, Maybe they just wanted to, instead of take notes, we wanted to watch pictures. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, they found it very interesting. So we had Sabbath service there. These are our leaders in South Africa. Um, Mr. Mansi Bauer and his wife, Luce, uh, on the left. Uh, then uh, Pat and Peter Vanderbile. 
next to me there. And then uh, the gentleman in the back row is Simon Mathama. He came down from Kenya to be with us for the Sabbath and for a little regional conference we had on Sunday. Then Louis Bauer and his wife, Nola, Christo and Ria Botha, and then the young fellow we just ordained recently, Lottie uh, Ferreira and his wife. Uh, this may not mean much to you, but uh, after living in New England for about 10 years up there, we had a lot of Portuguese in our church in Providence, Rhode Island, and Ferreira is a Portuguese name. Uh, he said, my family has been in South Africa for four generations. They've been there that long. Uh, so it was interesting to just be able to connect with these people. This was our regional ministerial conference we had the next day for the leaders in South Africa. This is what we covered in the uh, ministerial conference. We had reports from each one of the church pastors of what was happening in their areas, and it was interesting to hear the growth that is taking place there. We talked about different aspects of leadership. Dr. Meredith has talked about servant leadership, and I was talking also about being a shepherd uh, as a leader. We talked about the characteristics that leaders need to have, character, uh, a sense of competence. You've got to know what you're doing and also be caring people. And these are qualities God is going to be looking for in leaders in the coming kingdom of God. We also talked about teamwork. Dr. Meredith had a sermon on this recently uh, and the qualities that team players have to have. We've got to be able to cooperate and work together, show respect to other people on the team, trust other people on the team, and don't take pot shots at other people on the team. It just doesn't work. It undermines teamwork. But these are things we're going to have to learn now so that we can do this in the coming kingdom of God. We talked about some administrative things and the use of technology, and we talked about a number of different doctrinal issues that are coming up down there. Then it was time to come home. Hopped on another South African air flight uh, heading back from uh, South Africa to the United States. We took off in Johannesburg, flew about seven and a half hours to Dakar in Senegal. It's on the very tip of uh, western tip of um, Africa. It's a long flight, about 4,000 miles. We took off at night around 11 o'clock, and I think this was the highest security that I ever encountered, that we went through regular security. Then before we got on the plane, they put the men in one line, women in another line, patted everybody down, went through our luggage. Uh, we landed in Dakar. Some people got off the plane, other people got on, but everybody had to take their luggage out of the upper bins to make sure that nothing was left there that shouldn't be there. And then we went on our way to... Uh, the United States, another 4,000 miles, got in about 9 o'clock in the morning, and then uh, caught another flight down to Charlotte. So this is kind of a brief summary of what happened, stopping different places around the world, uh, going around in 21 days. To summarize briefly, and then I want to talk about prophecy, the trip was about 28,000 miles, about 62 hours in the air, not all at once, thankfully. <laughs> Not all at once, but we had five Tomorrow's World presentations, had over 700 guests that came, and we probably mailed out about 7,000 to 8,000 invitations, and there's probably going to be spillover from those invitations that people will probably dribble in over the next several weeks. This has happened in the, the United States here. We had three services, a Bible study, where we were able to interface with about 300 of our members down there at a regional conference 
had a number of personal visits that I've talked with Dr. Meredith about. But I think one of the big benefits of the trip was merely our members in New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa had a chance to interface with somebody from headquarters. I wanted to just read a letter from one lady that she just kind of stuck in my pocket. Uh, I think this came from one of the, I think it was either Brisbane or Melbourne. She said, Hi, let's see. It's fantastic for my country that you have been so willing and enthusiastic to come to our and share, to come to our country and share or preach the gospel. My country has changed dramatically since my childhood in the 60s. Doors weren't locked at that time. Children played in the streets, and there was respect for all levels of authority and a peace in our land that we all sorely miss. Thank you so much for your dedication and so on for coming down here. But You know, that sounds like America in the 50s or the 60s. We didn't lock our doors in many cases. Kids played in the street. You didn't worry about going out at night. But a lot of things are changing in countries that have been blessed incredibly. I want to talk then finally about um, some of the things that I saw along the way, just kind of reflections. I got back and was just thinking, you know, what did I really see? What, what fits with Bible prophecy? And one of the things that was extremely obvious in New Zealand and South Africa and also in Australia was the decline of Christian religious values in countries that once claimed to be Christian. You see a rise of immorality. I was talking with um, a number of people in Australia about the woman who was just recently elected their prime minister, Julia Gillard, or Gillard. And again, the comments here are not mine. This is what's in the media. They're saying that she's a socialist, a feminist, an atheist, an adulteress. She's promoting abortion on demand, and she lives with a gay companion. This is the leadership in that country. The biggest social event in Australia is the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. It brings in hundreds of thousands of tourists and millions of dollars. And this is where the country is going. One of the articles I was going through, it said most Australians could care less about God. And less than 8% go to church. Another individual made the comment, New Zealand is just not a religious country. And yet we had 300 people showed up. When we're talking about what is ahead for New Zealand. But this decline of Christian religious values is becoming more and more evident in Israelite countries around the world. Some prophecies that go along with some of these things. God told the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 4, and again, he's talking to the children of the Israelites that came out of Egypt, that saw their parents turn away from God and have to wander for 40 years in the wilderness until they died. Moses is talking to the children, the second generation. And he said, remember, when the Lord brings you into the land that he promised to Abraham, beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. One person told me it was a book written about 1965 in Australia talking about Australia, the lucky country. They don't feel real lucky today. They feel like that uh, people from Indonesia are looking over their shoulder. 
one of our ministers down there was told when he ran into a guy either from um, Indonesia or Malaysia and said, you know, you guys are Australians. You've got an awful lot of land down there. We're going to have to come down and show you how to use it properly. There are 220 million people where this guy was coming from. The Australians have 22 million people. Now, things are going to happen to nations that turn away from God. Isaiah 3.12 talks about there, As for my people, the people of Israel, women rule over them, and those who lead you cause you to err. They're taking you down the wrong roads. This lady leading Australia has some very similar ideas to President Obama. It's going to be interesting to see where their country goes and where our country goes. This was an ad you can pull off the Internet about this uh, uh, Mardi Gras celebration that they have down there. You know, they, several years ago, we actually published an article in Prophecy Comes Alive that they had some fires down in southern Australia. And this is where all this homosexual activity takes place around Melbourne and Sydney, southern part of Australia. But they had some fires down there where the wall of the fires, they, they think that may have started either by arson or by arcing power lines because they had really high winds. And uh, these fires burned uh, thousands of acres, killed hundreds of people, destroyed hundreds of homes. Uh, there was also an earthquake occurred right after those fires. But all this happened right before the gay Mardi Gras was going to take place. But nobody was making a connection. God is going to do some things to nations that he's blessed that have turned their back on him. Another thing I noticed in all three of these countries, New Zealand, South Africa, and Australia, was the resurgence of paganism. The resurgence of paganism. God said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 12, whenever he was giving them the promised land, he said, when the Lord cuts off nations that you will dispossess, take heed that you're not ensnared to follow them. Don't do what they are doing. Don't get excited about what they're doing. Don't inquire after their gods. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination which the Lord hates, they have done to their gods. But when you look at the cultural resurgence in New Zealand, for example, these dance troops, the first time I saw this was about 15 years ago. My wife and I were in New Zealand, went to the National Museum, and they had a Maori dance troupe. And I was there with another faculty member from Big Sandy at the time. And we both walked out of there and said, this is demonic. This is demonic. Because they dance around. And what they do is, is put on a simulated battle. And they're sticking their tongues out, grimacing their faces, making a bunch of noise, yelling and screaming. But they were putting this on for the tourists. This is what they look like up close. Uh, <clears throat> this is undergoing a resurgence in New Zealand. But you see these eyes on these carvings. The reason they, these are Maori carvings, the reason they put the eyes there, they believe that spirits live in these things. So you've got to put eyes on them so the spirits can see. But this is the resurgence that's taking place there. In Australia, you've got the Aborigines, again, that believe in, in the spirits. This was in a flight magazine. It was an article entitled, Walking with the Spirits. It's a cultural uh, type of thing where a theater director got together with some of the aborigines and puts together a, a um, uh, <clears throat> kind of a cultural weekend. 
But God said, don't learn the way of the heathen. Don't learn these things. But you'll notice some of the kids here in this picture are not aboriginal kids. They're European kids. They're Australian kids. And they're kind of playing with the spirits in this thing. In South Africa, you've got the Zulus down there. And again, they have their witch doctors. And they believe if you upset the spirits of your ancestors, then they could do things to you. But this is making a big comeback in all of these countries. God wanted his people to be an example, to teach people a different way of life, to come out of the superstition. And yet we're going back into these things. We're encouraging these things because there's money there. There's tourist dollars to be made. Some prophetic warnings about what's happening in some of those countries there and is happening here. Isaiah talked about the land is full of silver and gold. In other words, the land is full of Riches, And that's pretty much our, our nations today. You know, South Africa is very different from the rest of Africa. It's very cosmopolitan, very affluent. That is, some people are very affluent and others are not. And there's going to be consequences from that. Isaiah says the land is full of silver and gold. They worship the work of their hands. God mentions through Deuteronomy, he says, The alien among you shall rise up higher above you, and you will come down lower and lower. And we're seeing this happen in a number of these countries. Jesus said one of the signs of his imminent return would be that there would be wars and rumors of wars, rumors of violence, that nation would rise up against nation. The word here is ethnos. It means one ethnic group is going to rise up against another ethnic group. This is happening much more dramatically in South Africa. Just a little bit about South Africa. You may not be able to read, read that sign up there at the top. This was the inside of a shopping mall where people with money go and where people that don't have money go anyways and they walk around. <laughs> uh, but the sign there at the back says something about uh, uh, <clears throat> if somebody said money doesn't bring happiness, they don't know where to shop. Uh, Many people look to material things to make them happy, but that doesn't really work. This is what you see quite a bit of in South Africa, around Johannesburg, is security fences to keep people out, to protect what you have inside. And this is just looking up the street. Every house has these things. This was the guest house in which we stayed, a bed and breakfast type of thing. But you see the sliding uh, door into the driveway, but there are electric wires, four or five strings of those things running across the top of the the wall. Again, the people that have money have got to protect themselves from people that don't have money. And the income disparity in South Africa is very dramatic, and it's probably going to blow that country wide open if things are not changed. This is the room I stayed in, but look at the window the bars on the window, the cage. I felt like I was inside of a cage. This was the bathroom. Again, protecting themselves from other people that would come in and take what you have. You know, we didn't read the scriptures back here, but there are scriptures that relate to this. Deuteronomy 32 says, you turn away from God, this in the street, the sword is going to be reeve. It's going to, you know, you're going to have violence in the streets, but in their homes, they're going to be terror. You're going to be afraid. And that's what's happening. While we were there, they were having strikes. Many of the people were striking because they didn't make enough money. They want to make more money. They see some people living very well. 
So the unions were striking. If one union struck, then the next union would strike to support them. Uh, it was very difficult to get gasoline while we were in Pretoria and uh, in Johannesburg because the people that were delivering the gas wouldn't deliver the gas. And we had that in California a number of years ago where you know, people were riding around town trying to find a gas station. And you see a big, long line. Everybody get in the line, and somebody cut the line, and then people would get fights. But they were demonstrating down there. We had a uh, – uh, this was some of the violence taking place. We had a young fellow that owns a business there, a manufacturing business. And some of his workers crossed the picket line. And then they were attacked when they went home, beaten up, wound up in a hospital. He has a picture taken on his cell phone of about 50 people dancing around in front of his business saying, shoot the Afrikaner, kill the boar. Uh, boar is another name for Afrikaners. But this is what's happening there. It's bubbling down there because of the income discrepancy. Uh, it's going to be a very challenging period of time, and many people that live there realize it's not going to be fun down the road. Final thing I want to talk about <clears throat> is uh, Germany and South Africa. Now, prophecies are coming alive. This is a ship or a, a picture of a German warship in Simonstown Harbor. This is just a little bit south of uh, Cape Town. The Germans have had four uh, joint military exercises over about the last eight years with the South African Navy. They brought their ships down there. They brought their planes down there. They've been practicing not, not only shooting live ammunition, but they've been using a missile range off the coast of South Africa. Simonstown, you can see here at the base of this mountain, uh, just over the mountain is the tip of south, uh, is the southern tip of Africa. It sits in a very sheltered bay on the Indian Ocean. Uh, here's another shot of the Simonstown naval base. And this is why it's significant. Simonstown is just, uh, you know, five or ten miles from the very tip of southern Africa. If something happens to the Suez Canal or we can't get ships through the Middle East, the ships are going to have to go around the tip of Africa. And the Germans want to be down there to control that area or enable the South Africans to control it. So they've been conducting joint exercises with the South African government. Just to notice the involvement of Germany in South Africa. Right before the World Cup a couple of years ago, the German police offered to train the South African police so they could deal with any security problems that might arise from the World Cup but they were getting people into South Africa to work with the South Africans. South Africa is a major training partner of the German Democratic Republic. The German Democratic Republic sells a lot of arms to South Africa, including the ships for their navy, including their submarines, including the, uh, the ammunition that they use. They're using a common source. The Germans had a, this joint military exercise several of them over the last several years, but they're learning to work together. The Germans appear to have a plan. They want South Africa to become a regional power and to be an ally that they can use if they get into military activities in other parts of the world. They're looking to the South Africans to, to back them up, much like America has had uh, allies that back them up. Why is Germany interested in South Africa? South Africa is rich in minerals. Half of the world's gold comes from South Africa. Diamonds come from South Africa. Other rare minerals come from South Africa. 
And the Germans do not want to lose South Africa. They need South Africa as a market, and they want to have it as a strategic location that they can operate from. Now, why is this important? <clears throat> God prophesies in a number of different places. He says that Assyria, Germany, is going to be the rod of God's anger. He said, I'm going to send him against an ungodly nation. And the Israelite nations that have turned away from God are going to have to deal with a German-led organization. Hosea makes the comment that Assyria will become the, the king of Israel or dominate the Israelite nations at some point in time because they refused to repent. They didn't change. So what appears to be being set up in South Africa is the Germans have offered to stabilize South Africa or keep them stable if the country begins to come apart. And that appears to be what may happen down there. The Germans not only sell them arms, they sell them an awful lot of BMW cars. Uh, you know, these are high-end performance cars, but they've got a big investment there. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in South Africa in the years just ahead. It's going to be a very interesting thing to watch, a very sobering thing to watch, because uh, as one of the, the white European conservative leaders I talked to a couple of years ago, he said, the people in my, 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 my group are beginning to ask, why is God taking our country away from us? Because they believe they're good Christians, many of these Afrikaners. Uh, but even in the Afrikaner community, uh, they said dress at church is much more casual. Uh, their approach to teaching is much more liberal. So again, even as a church down there, they're getting away from God. And God said, you turn away, there will be consequences because I made, a, <laughs> I made a deal. I made a covenant with Abraham, your father, and with Isaac and Jacob to bless you. But you've turned away from me, even though I have blessed you. Conclusions. <clears throat> you can't travel outside the United States to some of these countries, to South Africa, to Australia, to New Zealand. They're beautiful countries very productive countries. Uh, God has blessed these nations. Again, not because he is uh, against anybody else. He made a promise to Abraham. He said, if you obey me, you're going to be blessed, and I'm going to keep those blessings. I'm going to honor those blessings. But if you turn away from me, you're going to lose those things, and that's basically what is happening today. You know, God has blessed these nations incredibly. He gave them his laws because he wanted them to be an example to the world. He wanted them to be an example to the world. He wanted other nations to look at the Israelites and say, look, how come you're blessed? And our, our, our answer should have been because we're keeping the laws of God. You can be blessed, too, if you keep the laws of God. But we've turned away from those laws and we're beginning to lose those blessings. The time of Jacob's trouble, as talked about in Jeremiah 30, is coming. It's interesting to talk to South Africans and Australians, and they say, you know, what's happening in America? It looks like you're going down the tubes. But they are too. They are too. But in many cases, they don't understand why they're going down the tubes. Because many of these South Africans think, well, we're good Christians, but they're turning away from God in a number of different ways. But the handwriting is on the wall for anyone to see. The other very encouraging thing was that God does have a faithful flock of people. 
And that was really encouraging. You had to talk with people and to see their focus, to see their supportive headquarters, their support of Dr. Meredith. They're, they're there. They feel very thankful to be part of the church at this point in time. It's a small flock. It's not a big flock, but that flock is growing of dedicated, focused people. My comments to you as we conclude, as we see these things happening, you know, Jesus said several different times, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, watch, keep your eyes open. You know, it's so tempting today to get caught up in, in, in little picky things, uh, physical things, uh, interpersonal relationships. Uh, we've got to stay focused on the big picture. Things are happening in the world that are not normal. And many people are beginning to realize that. We need to be watching and making the connection between what God said would happen to his people if we turn away from God. We need to be watching. We need to do our part to draw closer to God, you know, to take time to pray, to take time to study. You know, we can't do it on our own. We can't run on fumes. We've got a work to do. You, know, you can't just sit at home in your living room and have your own little devotions. God has called us to work together as a team to do his work, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. You know, I may have done this thing kind of like on my own, but I appreciated your prayers. I appreciated Dr. Meredith letting me get away from the office. <laughs> but, you know, the connection that we need to make with people is extremely important because they want to feel part of the work. They do feel part of the work, and they want to convey that they are part of that. So we need, to, we need to work together to do the work and rise above any little petty things. And we need to be ready because Jesus said he's going to come back at a time when people are not, not really watching. They're focused on other things. So I want to leave that with you. I want to thank you very much for your prayers. It's been exciting sharing this with you. It was exciting seeing God's people in some of these places of the world that I think really think that they're a long way away. They're down under, but, of course, we're up. We may be down under whenever they're turning around in a different way. <laughs> it was a privilege to be part of the work. I wanted to share this with you because it was exciting. It was interesting, but it was also sobering to see what's happening around the world, but exciting to see what God is doing in some of these places around the world. So please keep them in your prayers.